our Father, we are grateful for the time that we were able to spend together singing the truths that were found in those songs. Truly, when we have nothing else, we can sing with great joy and with a great sense of of peace and of satisfaction that all we have is Christ. Even if you didn't bless us with anything else, to say that we have Christ and Christ alone, that is enough, Lord. We're grateful for Him. We're grateful for the salvation that we have in Him. And we pray that we would, as we transition into a time of preaching, that we, we would allow for our lives to be used of you as an offering, a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of worship. We pray that you would be honored as we worship you through the preaching of your word. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Help us understand the truths that you desire us to not only know, but also live out. So we pray, Father, that you would be honored this morning as we hear your word and as we respond to it. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen. Well, good morning again to all of you. Uh, If you've just found our church through YouTube or some other means, we are so grateful that you are joining us for our Sunday morning worship services. We briefly took a detour last month to reflect on the hope that God gives Christians in himself. But this morning, we will return to our series in the one another's as we study what it looks like to practice the one another's through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to do so through a very familiar passage to all of you, Galatians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 16 to 26. Galatians 5, 16 to 26. So please turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Galatians 5, and we'll read the Word of God. The Apostle Paul writes this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. In 2003, a famous hip-hop group released a song called Where is the Love? The song notes the problems that the artists observed in the world 
and uh, it caused them to turn to God and to ask for guidance because of all the violence that they saw in the world. And as they saw all the violence in the world, they were wondering, as the song was so aptly named, where is the love? Not much has changed since 2003. Some of us can even argue that it is worse now than it was back in 2003. However, whenever the world around us recognizes that we have significant issues with one another, one of the solutions that we almost always circle back to is our need to be unified in love. If love itself is the solution, if love is the thing which unifies people groups from different cultural, social, and economic backgrounds, and there are still problems in the society that we live in, then the conclusion that we should draw is that there must be a problem with our love. After all, if we truly love one another from the heart, if we were truly interested in loving other people more than we love ourselves, then the society we should, that, that we live in should be harmonious as we're all willing to let go of personal wrongs, to genuinely have discussion over issues which we have disagreements and so on and so forth. But we do not live in such a society, nor will we ever live in such a society until Christ returns. Why? Because the problem is in our love. The problem is in the sinful hearts of man. You see, when we try and love people on our own strength, we will always fail. There will be a time when our patience runs out. There will be a point where we will no longer tolerate those who try us with, the, with their differences of opinion and unwillingness to conform to what we believe to be right. And what I just described to you certainly describes the political climate that we live in today, but, but if we are not careful, it could also be something that creeps into the church undetected, something that we bring into our fellowship every time we meet because it resides in our hearts. And so, we know who we ought to be as a result of our salvation in Jesus Christ. We know what we ought to believe and how we ought to act in light of what we say we believe. However, it is far too easy as a result of our intellectual knowledge to be Christians in name and outward appearance, but fail to be Christians in the heart. We may fail to truly be those who love God the Father, merely taking, ad the, uh, merely taking advantages of what benefits we, we can of being associated with Christ and being associated with the church without actually being a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. And so as we go through the one another's, one of the dangers of, of such a study is allowing for the list of the one another commands to be the standard by which we judge our faithfulness to God. We could end up being like the rich young ruler who told Jesus that he had kept the entire law only to walk away from him, not able to follow after him because we love something more than we love Jesus himself. 
And so as we learn about the one another's, we must also be careful to practice them out of a genuine love for God and others, not out of a desire to justify ourselves. Our passage this morning follows a reminder from Paul that Christians have been saved through God's gracious gift of faith so that all who believe might be freed from their enslavement to sin. And as a result, Christians are not to use that freedom as an occasion to hurt one another through their exercise of their freedoms. Rather, they were to love one another and serve one another. Nor were they to return to legalistic practices as if that made them any more righteous before God. And so with that in mind, what we are going to observe this morning are four truths, four truths which help believers refine our practice of the one another's. And those four truths are, number one, Christians walk by the Spirit. Number two, Christians take sin seriously. Number three, Christians demonstrate the fruit of salvation. And number four, Christians practice faith through the Spirit. The first truth that we're going to look at this evening, or this morning, is uh, Christians walk by the Spirit. Christians walk by the Spirit. Verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So in light of Paul's instruction for the Galatians to serve one another through love or in love, Paul tells them how they might avoid being those who bite and devour one another. In order to avoid being those who destroy ourselves from within, Paul commands that Christians actively walk by the Spirit. And the metaphorical use of the word walk has been used by Paul elsewhere in his letters to describe a person's lifestyle. And so what Paul is saying here is that a Christian's lifestyle, it ought to flow and be guided by, be directed by the Holy Spirit. A believer's lifestyle flows from the Holy Spirit in the sense that it is through the Spirit's power and influence that we choose to obey God. And this is not a work that we do, uh, do, that we do on our own, uh, through our own strength, but it is a work that we do through the Holy Spirit. Just as many of our electronic devices need to be plugged into a power source in order to operate, so must we be plugged into the Holy Spirit. So must we draw on the Holy Spirit's power to please God in our lives. And the way that we know How to please God is also given to us by the Holy Spirit, as He is the one who inspired the authors of Scripture to write God's Word. He also is the one who helps us understand the truth that God wants us to know. The Holy Spirit is actively involved in our lives to help us grow in godliness and live in godliness. And that is seen at the uh, promise at the end of verse 16. If you live by the Holy Spirit, if you are guided by his instruction and you live through the power that he provides you, then you will not, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. In other words, as long as you are faithful in relying upon the Holy Spirit to love Christ and obey Christ, you will not act in a sinful manner. You will not. However, the opposite is also true. If you fail 
if you fail to live by the Holy Spirit's power to love Christ and obey him, you will fail to have victory over your sin. Even if you say that you would like to fight sin in your life, even though you try to fight sin in your life, you will fail if you do not do so through the power of the Holy Spirit. Your efforts to fight sin and grow in godliness will fall short if you're only trying to fight your sin through your own good intentions. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, will help us. He'll help us to fight the flesh and win. Why is this the case? Well, verses 17 through 18 explain more. It says this, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Paul helps us see that the Holy Spirit and our flesh are in direct conflict with one another, direct opposition towards one another. The word flesh, it usually refers to our physical bodies, but it can also include our mind, our emotions, and our will. And some of you have heard me say this before, but God chose to create us as thinking, feeling, and choosing beings. And when we live our lives according to the Spirit's guidance, our thoughts, our emotions, and our will are influenced by righteousness. They're influenced by righteousness because they're influenced by God. On the other hand, when we allow for our heart's desires to be what guides our thoughts, our emotions, and our wills, we will be severely tempted to reject the Spirit's guidance and do what we want rather than what God wants. The Apostle John writes this in 1 John 2, 16. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Before any of us heard the gospel and believed in Christ and, uh, and turned away from our sins, our heart's desires were guided by those three desires. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And for those of us who have genuinely placed our faith in Jesus Christ, these three desires, the lustful desire of of flesh, eyes, and, and the desire to inflate self, have been replaced by a love for God and a love for his people. And when we talk about a love for God, we're talking about a love that desires to please him, to obey him, so that we will love other people, so that we will turn away from all of our sins. Christ's death on the cross and and his falling resurrection won the overall battle against sin. But the complete and full victory is still yet to come when Christ returns to defeat sin once for all. And until that time, the remaining sin in our heart will be at war with the spirit that is within us also. So that when we want to do what's right, our flesh is going to fight against it. When we want when we want to sin, especially when we know that what we want is against God's will, we're going to feel our conscience warning us, don't do it. Don't do it. You'll notice 
that Paul does not indicate when this battle between the flesh and the spirit will be over in this life. And as a result, Paul's command for us to actively live by the Holy Spirit is absolutely critical. We do not let up in our war against sin because our sin is not yet done with us. As Peter reminded his readers in 1 Peter 5, 8, our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If Satan and his minions can distract us from following after Christ, if they can lure us away to, and cause some of us to love sin more than Jesus and cause other people around us to be discouraged from following Christ, they will attempt to do so out of their hatred for God. Therefore, by the grace that God freely gives, strive to put sin to death so that you will not allow your sin to rule over you, to rule over the desires of your heart. As verse 18 reminds us, a spirit-led life is a spirit-empowered life. If you are merely trying to obey the commands of Scripture through your own will and strength, you have, in a sense, returned to the law. A return to to obedience to the law is the exact thing that Paul writes against in his letters to the Galatians as they were being tempted by some to believe in a salvation that was achieved by faith in Christ plus their ability to obey the law. And so Paul wants to help his readers and us by extension to understand that the law was never meant to teach us how to be made righteous through our own obedience. In Romans 7, 7 to 8, Paul explains that the law was given so that we might know what sin is. If it wasn't for the law, we wouldn't know what sin is. Uh, we, um, we wouldn't understand that we rightfully deserve God's judgment because of our sin. The law helps us understand that we are in trouble and that there is nothing that we can do on our own to get ourselves out of trouble permanently. And that leads us to another function of the law. In in Galatians 3.24, Paul describes the law as our tutor that leads us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. In other words, the laws, many laws and sacrifices were supposed to help people realize that futility. They were supposed to help people realize that there is no hope to please God on our own because the sacrifices would be endless because we sin endlessly. And so, What we needed was for God to step in and to provide righteousness once for all if we're going to have a relationship with him. And he did that. He did that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we may not try to obtain our righteousness through our ability to obey the law today, but we do tend to evaluate the strength of our relationship with God on our own ability to say no to sin. We rely on how long it's been since the last time we messed up. We rely on our feelings and how close we feel to God. And this is just the natural tendency of our hearts. But brothers and sisters, you are not under the law. Your righteousness, your standing before God is not determined by how well you are able to keep yourself from sinning 
or how long it's been since your last encounter with those big sins. It's dependent on the finished work of Christ on the cross for you and the gracious gift of faith that God gave to you by the Holy Spirit. And so as we study God's word and truly commit ourselves to trust and obey God, we will follow the Spirit as he leads us into righteous living. And so it's important for us to recognize that though the Spirit is leading us towards Christ-likeness, we also bear a responsibility. We bear personal responsibility for growing in Christ-likeness. And verse 18 shows us that, yes, he leads us. But as we combine verse 18 with verse 16, we understand that we are commanded to walk by the Spirit as well. So we are being led, but we are being commanded also to continue to be led, to, to continue to follow. So brothers and sisters, walk in the Spirit. Submit yourself to Him and to the Word of God. Do not give yourself excuses for when you will decide to finally obey God or act like your inability to obey God is because He's not helping you. He is helping you. He is willing to to help you fight sin. We also bear that responsibility, though, for obeying what the Spirit has revealed to us in God's Word. And that leads us to the second truth that helps believers refine our practice of the one another's, and that is that Christians take sin seriously. Christians take sin seriously. Verse 19 through 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If people were wondering what Paul meant when he was talking about carrying out the desires of the flesh, he highlights some examples of what living out sinful desires might look like in a life. And this is not supposed to be a list that covers all the possible sins that a person could commit, but is a small sample. And he goes on to describe 15 of these sins to the people to help, to help them see what sins characterize those who live by the flesh. And so we're going to quickly look at these descriptions so that we can get an idea of what Paul is saying in these verses. Now, the first sin is the sin of immorality. It refers to all kinds of sexual sins. Impurity or uncleanness refers to a person's immoral standing before God. Just like in the Old Testament, moral uncleanness meant separation from God. Sensuality can also be translated as debauchery. And this sin originally referred to a, a love of sin or wrongdoing, a great love for sin and wrongdoing, but eventually came to be used to describe an unrestrained appetite for sexual sins. Idolatry in ancient times, of course, referred to the worship of items which were not gods, like the wood and stone statues, which were supposed to represent deities. Um, it could also refer to anything that people worshipped or wanted more than they wanted God. 
Sorcery was not necessarily a reference to magic and, and witchcraft through the use of magic wands like in Harry Potter, but instead uh, what we have here is the, is the word that uh, we derive our word pharmacy from. It, the word was originally used as a general reference to medicine, but in this context it refers to any sort of drug that poisons the body or alters the mind or moods. And the use of such drugs were very common in the practice of witchcraft uh, in that day, which is why the word became associated with sorcery. Enmities are hostilities towards others. These are hateful attitudes towards others that lead to relational breakdowns between people. Strife can also be understood as quarrelsomeness or having a contentious temper. It's the idea of frequently making one's anger or displeasure known. Jealousy is not the positive sense of jealousy that God has for his people, right? but it's the negative sense. It's anger and hateful resentment caused by wanting what someone else has. Outbursts of anger, it's pretty self-explanatory. These are uncontrolled explosions of rage that occur with little or no reason. The words disputes came to acquire the meaning of self-seeking, self-ambition, and a mercenary spirit, especially in a context where there was an opportunity for rivalry. Dissensions was often used to describe those who caused divisions in the group. And related to dissensions is factions, the idea of a more uh, formally organized group of dissenters. And usually these groups were formed over doctrines, differences in doctrine that people wanted to, to, to fight about. Envying was a grudging spirit that despised others for what they had. Drunkenness refers to the abuse of alcohol, excessive indulgence in wine, which was very common in the Roman Empire. And carousing is closely related to drunkenness and usually referred to drunken parties and any sins that were associated with such parties. Now, Paul, he ends his list of these sins with the words, and things like these. Right? This is an indication that if Paul wanted to, he probably could continue to describe sins that are associated with carrying out the desires of the flesh. And though this list of sins may seem loosely related with one another, one common theme that runs through all of these sins is the elevation and prioritization of self. All of these sins demonstrate a desire to prioritize one's self. We are thinking, choosing, feeling beings. Our hearts are driven by a desire to worship something. And usually it's a desire to please ourselves. And so these sins, right, they all mark a desire to put one, oneself ahead of other people. And a preoccupation of loving self and doing what you want over what God wants you to do is a mark of living according to the flesh. And so we ought to ask ourselves, is this us? Is this us? Are we those who love ourselves so much that we're willing to put aside righteousness in order to accomplish 
the sin that we so desperately desire. And this is, this is the attitude that Paul warns the Galatians about in the latter half of verse 21. He says, things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. As you see, Paul is not just warning them about their life choices now. This is not something that he just brought up. This is something that he has previously warned them about, that that they should not be characterized by these sins because those who practice these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. When Paul talks about the practice of these sins, the current active practice of sin, he's using a different word, but he's referring to their lifestyle, to their lifestyle. This is a, a, a lifestyle of sin. True believers should not continually carry out the desire of the flesh in their lives as if they were unbelievers. For some of these sins, for sure, Christians might get tripped up by some of them on occasion. But many of these sins, many of these sins that appear on this list, if they are being committed should legitimately cause people who practice these sins to wonder whether they are actually saved. Paul knows as well as you and I do that anyone anyone can be good or appear good for a time. We can put on a good show. We can have a successful ministry outwardly and still practice the deeds of the flesh when no one's looking. And the warning that such practices will disqualify someone from inheriting the kingdom of God should cause all of us to carefully consider whether we are habitually characterized by any of these deeds of the flesh. Are these common for us? Do we routinely practice these things? Because if we are, we are in trouble. We are in trouble. We are still in our sins. And so what we must ask ourselves is, are we willing, if these sins characterize us, are we willing to repent of these sins, to put them away and to put on righteousness so that we can be assured of our salvation, so that we can inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be too quick to clear yourselves of these deeds of the flesh or to make excuses for why you might struggle with some of these sins. The consequence of missing out on inheriting the kingdom of God is too great for you just to quickly dismiss these sins. We might make excuses for our sins, thinking that God, he understands what I'm going through. He understands the pressures that I'm experiencing, and he's going to give me some grace. But God is not mocked. Your excuses will not cut it if you willfully choose to sin and act as if your sin is nothing. Your sin is not nothing. It is rebellion against God. It's the very reason why Jesus Christ went to the cross for you. And as a result, that should cause us to desire to take sin seriously. As Paul reminds us in Romans 6, 1-2, we should not continue to sin because, hey, we'll get more grace as a result. We died to sin. Therefore, we should no longer live in it. So we need to stop making excuses. Stop making excuses for your sin. Stop 
saying that, oh, you know, I'm working on it, but not actually put any work into it. Stop making your excuses. We need to stop seeing how close we can get to crossing the line with sin without actually crossing it. We need to take sin seriously. We need to take personal responsibility for obeying the command that God has for us to walk by the Spirit and live by the Spirit because we love Him. When we understand the great cost that he paid in order to redeem us from our sins. As a result, we should desire to take sin seriously and to deal with it properly in our lives. And we will do so by the Holy Spirit. And as we do so by the Holy Spirit, we're going to see the third truth that helps us refine this practice of the one another's, and that is that Christians demonstrate the fruit of salvation. Christians demonstrate the fruit of salvation. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So in sharp contrast to those who will not inherit the kingdom of God because of their habitual sinful practices, true Christians will demonstrate the genuineness of their faith through the fruit of the Spirit. As we walk by the Spirit, God himself will produce in us these fruits of righteousness as we continue to grow in Christ-likeness. And this means that every Christian who has genuinely repented of their sins will manifest the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. We're all going to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Now, it's true that some Christians may manifest fruit at different rates than others, Some people will grow very quickly. Some people will will grow a a little more slowly. But either way, either way, there should be some visible growth. Now, it's not necessarily our job to be the fruit police, scrutinizing other people's lives to see if they meet our standards and expectations uh, 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 for Christian growth. But there should be, there should be evidence of saving faith in every true believer's life. What are those evidences? Well, these are what we call the fruit of the Spirit. And just like with the deeds of the flesh, we're going to quickly describe the fruit of the Spirit. And there's nine of them. We start with love. Love should characterize every Christian. Love characterizes every Christian. This is not an option. This is not reserved for those who are more capable of showing affection or for those, who are, for those who are people persons. In Ephesians 5, 1-2, Paul tells the Ephesians that they are to be imitators of God. Therefore, they are to walk in love just as Christ also loved them and gave himself up for them. We are to imitate that same love that Christ showed to us towards others. In John 13, 35, Jesus reminds his disciples that it is their love for one another that will indicate to the the world that they are disciples of Jesus. Love must characterize the way that we interact with other people. And this does not mean that we cannot ever correct anyone. This does not mean that there's no place for, um, for firmness in our relationships with one another. But it means that any admonishment or correction that we 
give must be done in love. And I know that for, for some of us, right, when someone is correcting us, when someone is admonishing us and rebuking us, uh, it, it can seem as if it's not loving. And it could genuinely, uh, or it, it could at times not be done out of a heart of love. It could be done out of a heart of annoyance or, or, or a heart of anger. But what we want to recognize is that Love needs to characterize all of those things. And even if it's not done in the right way, it doesn't give us an excuse to throw off any correction or rebuke that we might receive. But to recognize that even if it was done in the wrong way, there's still some love that's in there. And that love desires for us to obey God, to turn around and to change. So love, it characterizes all interactions within a Christian's life. The next thing, the next fruit that we see uh, is, uh, is joy. Um, joy is not the same thing as happiness. It's, it's similar, but it's not the same thing. Today, we rejoice. And we have joy when the circumstances around us are, are favorable to us. But the joy that God gives us through the Holy Spirit is the joy that rejoices not in circumstances, but in God. And it's because of the hope that we have in him. The reason why Christians can rejoice even in times of trials is because our joy, our, our sense of, of, uh, of contentment is linked to our hope in God. It's a calm and settled knowledge, a, a settled joy that we will always be with the Lord. And, and knowing that he genuinely cares for us. It's a gift that we must learn to recognize we have in our possession even when times are hard, or even when tears are streaming down your face. You can still have joy. You can still have that settled and calm knowledge knowing that your God loves you, that he sees you, and that he cares for you. Peace is the confidence, the recognition of wholeness and being in right relationship with God. It's not the absence of conflict in your heart as you're weighing hard decisions, but it's, it's that settled knowledge of knowing that you're right with God and that you can trust in Him as you proceed in life. Patience, of course, is the idea of being long-suffering. You can endure injuries from others and respond righteously to situations which may be irritating or painful. There's no danger of retaliation or vengeance. Kindness is a reflection of God's goodness to others in that we show others much grace and concern. Related to kindness, of course, is goodness, which can be understood as great benevolence and generosity. Faithfulness refers to trustworthiness. Those who are servants of God are, are loyal to God and we're loyal to one another. We are faithful to do what we say we will do. Gentleness is better understood as meekness, which is strength or power under control, right? Jesus was a man who was gentle, but Jesus was not a wimp. He was immensely powerful, but he used that power with great control. Related, of course, to gentleness is self-control, the ability to master one's desires or passions. Now, Paul closes his description of the fruit of the Spirit with a summary statement, against such things there is no law. 
And that may seem like an odd way to close the description of the fruit the Holy Spirit produces in our lives, but it is a fitting description. God does not need to come up with laws to to prohibit such good behavior and attitudes, nor does he need to come up with laws to uh, force us to have these behaviors and attitudes. When we walk by the Spirit, we will demonstrate the fruit of salvation through the fruit of the Spirit. We'll demonstrate that we are saved through the fruit of the Spirit. And there will be no doubt that we are followers of God because everything we do backs our salvation up. Everything that we do backs up the fact that the Holy Spirit is in our hearts working, making us more like Christ. And it's for this reason that Paul reminds his readers in verse 24 that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The reason why Christians are capable of producing the fruit of the Spirit is because when God graciously gives us the gift of faith in Jesus, God also graciously unites us with Christ, in Christ's death and resurrection. So the death that he died crucified our old sin nature, which was enslaved to the deeds of the flesh and the passions and the desires that come with the deeds of the flesh. And in Christ's resurrection, we are given a new spiritual life that allows us to obey God and do what pleases Him. That leads us to our fourth and final truth that helps us refine our practice of the one another. And that that is that Christians practice faith through the Spirit. Galatians 5.25 If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Paul reminds Christians that as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ and God's gracious gift of the Holy Spirit to help us grow in Christ's likeness, we are to continue to live our lives by the Spirit's help. And we're to continue to live our lives by the Spirit's help. Another way to phrase this verse is, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We follow the Spirit's lead in our lives. Christians do not outgrow our need to follow after the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is an ever-present reality for those of us who've been saved. We should always reflect on our relationship with Him. We should always rely on Him for everything. And as a result, verse 26, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. As believers in Jesus Christ who walk by the Spirit, Christians should not be marked by sinful attitudes that elevate self over others. Those who were fighting in the churches of Galatia were demonstrating this immaturity as some boasted in their freedom and others boasted of their supposed righteousness. The true evidence of faith, as we have seen through this sermon, flows not from our liberty, not from our ability to obey the law, but from the Holy Spirit. As a result, pride should not mark the way that we interact with one another. The pride that showed up in the churches of Galatia were seen in challenging one another and envying one another. And challenging one another is not the idea of like challenging someone to think, right, getting them to think, but it's the idea of provoking someone to a fight. It's the fighting words or the fighting actions. 
Um, considering the context, the idea is, is probably talking about provoking someone to a fight about doctrine or theology, but it could also extend to stirring up any other unnecessary types of conflicts, tension, or, or fights of all kinds. Envying one another, of course, was already listed in the deeds of the flesh, but the fact that Paul brings it up again here indicates just how easy it is to have a grudging spirit, a jealous spirit against our brothers and sisters in the church. It could be over what they have. It could be over the ministries that they have. It could just be over anything, really. But it's, it's so easy for us to envy one another. We have to watch our hearts to make sure that we are not doing so. Since we are in the Spirit, pride and its manifestations of self-seeking, self-elevation, and self-righteousness have no place in our lives. We must be vigilant to watch ourselves for these sins and to remove them from our lives as best we can, right, through the Spirit's power. We, we must not only learn how God wants us to behave in His family, right, that's, we, we learn it in our, in our Bible studies, we learn it in our fellowship groups, in our Sunday schools, and in our sermons, but we must also be willing to submit to his will and strive by the Spirit's power to do his will. And we're, we're reminded of the fact that Jesus Christ is our Lord, that he deserves obedience, which is why we must be willing to submit ourselves to him. And we must be willing to submit ourselves to him because he is Lord. He can rightly require this of those he saves. You know, Practicing the one another's is naturally hard work for everyone because it means that we must put others first in our lives. And this is the exact opposite of how our flesh wants to act because by nature, we love ourselves more than we love other people. And as a result, we will have problems in practicing the one another's in a way that honors God consistently in our lives. However, this does not mean that our practice of the one another's is doomed to fail. As we saw this morning, the Holy Spirit himself is with us and he empowers us to obey God and to grow in Christlikeness so that we can fight against the desires of the flesh. And if we're fighting against the desires of the flesh, we can refine, uh, then our, our practice of the one another's can be refined as we learn to walk by the Spirit, take sin seriously, demonstrate the fruit of salvation, and practice faith through the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, practicing the one another's in a way that pleases God is hard if we try to do so on our own. It sometimes seems downright impossible to practice the one another's because of how much we have to die to self in order to put others ahead of ourselves. But by God's grace and through the Holy Spirit's power, we can learn how to die to self and put our pride aside so that we can genuinely love our fellow Christians. Let us sing in response to the truths that we've just reflected on.